Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. So we thought that our last episode was our last episode, but in fact, we had so much to say about uh, how films, sci-fi films, dealt with the 9-11 legacies, the aesthetic and the plot lines, that we went uh, pretty long and we decided we needed two episodes to deal with that topic. So this is part two, where we're going to break down how television dealt with some of those same themes. The ones that are really the focus for our two TV shows this week are that terrorists are everywhere. So that paranoia that there are terrorists even uh, where you can't see them, where you can't know that they may emerge at any minute. And that um, the deep state is plotting the end of the world. That uh, is also one of the of the themes. Then the theme of, of nihilism, the, the observation that post 9-11 shows really took up this idea that everything is pointless or that the meaning that you attach to things is your choice, not a meaning that really exists, that holds us all together, and that allows everything to make sense. And then finally, the the everyday nature of pain, which is sort of part of the torture porn theme that we were talking about last time, that Hollywood felt that it really had to ratchet up the level of pain, whether that's psychological pain or physical pain that characters were experiencing in order for it to seem somehow real or uh, plausible. And so the TV shows that we're going to be looking at today, which are Battlestar Galactica and The Leftovers, really embrace a lot of those uh, elements. And so we're going to spend some time talking about uh, those shows this week. Yeah, and that point about how pain manifests itself and psychological trauma can really best be done by long-form television. Sure, you can capture moments of that in a two-hour film, but our series today are exceptionally good at showing how human beings process trauma and pain over a long period of time. And so Battlestar Galactica uh, has many of the themes we talked about even last week uh, about 9-11, but it's also really surprisingly good at at dealing with grief and trauma and the, um, the, the human dimension of that trauma, not just the visual chaos and the aesthetic of 9-11. So let's talk, let's introduce Battlestar Galactica which began as a miniseries in 2003 before becoming a, a full-fledged TV series until 2008. And the, the Sci-Fi Channel's reimagination of the original Battlestar Galactica, you might remember that, uh, was only two years, or was it even one year? Uh, 1978 through 1979. Uh, this was reimagined in the early 2000s as a sci-fi opera, and it um, addressed critical issues of the day, specifically terrorism, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And a lot of critics and and commentators and the audiences understood that as being written into the show and really appreciated 
BSG, as we'll call it, blends elements of the classic space opera with all this commentary on racism, religious intolerance, and extremism, and the real long-running theme here, humanity's fraught relationship with technology. Yes, the, the series opening text reads, the Cylons were created by man. They were created to make life easier on the 12 colonies. And then the day came when the Cylons decided to kill their masters. After a long and bloody struggle, an armistice was declared. The Cylons left for another world to call their own. And can I say that in this use of the term of colonies, you know, the, the, the premise of this show is that there are 12 planets and that these 12 planets uh, are all part of this sort of single civilization and that, you know, the, so we, we've got that idea of colonialism already built in, but unlike the populations of these different planets becoming the colonized people who serve their overlords, it's that they create the Cylons we see them and they, they are in the slang referred to as toasters because they're all metal. They're very easily recognizable as the other. And they are in essence, the slaves of these, um, of the human populations of these, uh, of these planets. And so we set up the whole colonization, exploitation, uh, revolt, um, uh, you know, expulsion or decolonization in a sense, but the Cylons go off and we don't hear from them, right? That's, that's the, the, the sort of the premise. And so, yeah, they have the, the, the Cylon wars end and you say they disappear and this armistice uh, abruptly ends when the Cylons infiltrate the colony's defense network and launch a coordinated nuclear attack on every human settlement, all those colonies, and military installation. And the only thing that is left is the antiquated Battlestar Galactica and a collection of just stranded ships in space. That's how the 2003 miniseries begins. It introduces the characters uh, and they're all their complicated personal relationships with each other during this really intense, uh, unrelenting period of stress and trauma. Uh, Bill Adama, who's ed- played by brilliantly by Edward James Olmos, he you know, was quietly hoping to just end his career at his at a decommissioning ceremony. So this is it's the end of his career and and one that has filled with you know pain and loss himself. Uh, and yet, what happens is a kind of a nine eleven type event where the Cylons initiate this surprise attack, kill everybody, kill everything, and all of a sudden, what is all that is left is this stunned crew and random collection of ships with survivors struggling to to come to terms with, with what has just happened. And the the series is really this playing out over the course of, of several years. Um, and as you noted, you said the Cylons, we know they started out as these clunky metal centurions, which we remember from the original, but now they've become uh, so-called skin jobs. They look like humans. They feel like humans. And in fact, they've taken on the identities of some of the beloved human characters on the Battlestar Galactica. They all they are, for all intents and purposes, us. And so what is the main plot point here uh, after the miniseries begins is that they're going to search for the planet Earth. 
and the cat and mouse game over who gets there first and the survival of one race versus the other is the conceit of this series. Yeah, and I think that there's a a couple of uh, other things worth uh, pointing out that you did describe this, but just to sort of dwell on it for a second is that what we are left with is a tiny remnant of the human population. There is such a small number that they actually keep the number. It's, you know, roughly 47,000 people. The numbers fluctuate over the course of the series. But they keep the number on a, a, a board. That's how few people they have. And this is the entire human race. And so that trauma, that level of the, this notion of being under attack and having that level of literally existential threat is kind of ramping up the sense of atta- of being under attack and paranoia that really was not existential after 9-11. But Americans, so unused to being directly under attack because we tend to take our wars elsewhere uh that is something that we that we have here is this this taking what was symbolic with 911 and turning it into something that's very very real and then the other thing i want to highlight is that the reason why galactica does not get destroyed is because it's so old that it doesn't use the networked technology that the cylons are able to uh to infiltrate so that going back to our colonialism imperialism theme is kind of important because one of the real arguments that's that was used for the legitimacy of imperial domination and in some ways continues to be used as a as an argument for more developed nations exploiting less developed nations is that because you're more developed somehow that gives you some moral righteousness there's this idea that well we're this we're so successful because we're good and we're good because we're so successful and so that kind of using the uh, the humans technology against them is very much this kind of commentary on that sense of righteousness that technological prowess seems to give human beings um, and so so what we've got on this ship is we've got Edward James almost as almost as you say playing the the captain we have his son who's sort of estranged played by Jamie Bamber we've got the lowly secretary of education Laura Rosslin who just happened to be on one of these ships and therefore uh is the sole survivor in the cabinet of uh the colonies and so now suddenly she's president and then you also have the uh swashbuckling pilot who was in the original uh a male character but now starbuck uh in this reboot has become a, a female character and then we have other assorted people on the ship and it takes a while for us to understand who might be a cylon and then also to have that paranoia seep through the entire armada of ships once they realize that while there are still toasters out there, there are now these skin jobs that could be anyone. And so that theme of terrorists are everywhere 
is one that's very prevalent in BSG. Yeah, and the creator, Ronald D. Moore, knew he was in 2003 making a series that is heavily informed by 9-11. And one of the good things about having a series is that it can also catch up with current events. And by 2003, 2004, the United States is fully steeped in a war in Iraq that allows the series to also take on those issues, which we'll see um, and talk about some of the, the plot lines that relate to these war, these wars of adventure and that get into issues of imperialism and also insurgency and counterinsurgency. And so it's, it's interesting to see how this series is from the outset inspired by 9-11, but also then evolves into the aftermath which we've talked about so many times in other episodes. I like what I try to think of as the heart and soul of the series is, is something that Bill Dama gives in the first episode. In fact, the the which is the miniseries um, at the decommissioning ceremony for Battlestar Galactica. He is um, dealing with his own sense of guilt and loss with uh, having lost his son, one of his sons, in a a pilot training accident that he feels responsible for in some way. And he and you mentioned the how he's estranged from Apollo, uh, Lee, his son, based on that tragedy from what we can infer so early on in this in this part of the series. Uh, he, he strays from his prepared remarks at the ceremony to really, I think, lay out the whole moral theme of the of the series about what we do, what we've done, and how we we'll one day be responsible for it. And he's really talking about his grief, but also, as you talked about, the the relationship to humanity and the Cylons. Let's play that speech. And if you hear the audio change a little bit, it's because part of it is being heard by Lee in the cockpit of his his fighter, yet the he's that main audience for this speech, but it's really all of us who are just getting into this series. I think it's really a, a great piece of writing that um, when I look back on the series actually really spells out the theme of the series. Thank you very much. The Cylon War is long over. Yet we must not forget the reasons why so many sacrificed so much in the cause of freedom. The cost of wearing the uniform can be high, but sometimes it's too high. You know, when we fought the Cylons, we did it to save ourselves from extinction, but we never answered the question why. Why? Are we, as a people, worth saving? We still commit murder because of greed, spite, jealousy. And we still visit all of our sins upon our children. We refuse to accept the responsibility for anything that we've done. Like we did with the Cylons. We decided to play God create life. When that life turned against us, we comforted ourselves in the knowledge that it really wasn't our fault. Not really. You cannot play God then wash your hands of the things that you've created. Sooner or later, the day comes when you can't hide from the things that you've done anymore. And listening to that, 
Many of the films that we covered this season actually ask many of these same questions. Central to that is, you know, why are we the good guys? Which then begs the question, are we the good guys? Uh, there are other obvious signs that uh, this is very much tied to to 9-11, like the wall of the missing that we have, have spoken about repeatedly. After the uh, annihilation of all but that final remnant of the of human population is destroyed yet again we have one of these walls where people put up images they put up candles so it's a half um have you seen so and so but it's more a kind of commemorative uh, a commemorative uh uh wall uh we also get which is where we do get a little bit of the New York must be destroyed uh, thing, even in Battlestar Galactica, is the blighted urban landscape of Caprica City that is the capital. And we have this sense that Caprica is the sort of top of the pecking order of the planets within this system. Can I also say that this is yet another show that as a Vancouverite, <laughs> so I'm I'm born and raised in Vancouver, but lived a long time in New York, is one of those shows where I always watch with a kind of split consciousness. Because on the one hand, I'm thinking to myself, that is the, those are the government buildings of the capital city of Caprica. And the other part of my brain is saying, that's Simon Fraser University that's on the hill of Burnaby in Vancouver. So the the blighted landscape of Caprica is in is again sort of this like, you know, New York being destroyed. It's that you have this sense of this once great city that is now basically empty except for once again insurgents and then um uh Cylons. And the other is, of course, this persistent feeling of dread and anxiety about when and where the next attack will be. So that that nihilism, that sort of sense that does anything have any meaning anymore, you know, that is another uh, component that we that we get uh, here. It is, and it carries it's that that feeling of dread. You feel it as well. I mean, you're you're initially fully on the side of the human beings, you can imagine, although it gets complicated later, and you're you're you know that they're on the run and that there's there's this uh again feeling that we're all left with after 9/11 is what's next and where is it going to come from but i think um Battlestar Galactica's most controversial storyline concerns the Cylon occupation of what becomes New Caprica which is this uh failing colony populate, populated by some of the fleet members who were too exhausted by the the failed search for earth and so they find this planet that is not great, but it seems to be hospitable. And what happens is the Cylons discover that they're there as well, and they um, occupy it. And critics noted reference to the American occupation of Iraq, including what becomes a violent insurgency. This time, the humans are revolting against the Cylons, a ruthless counterinsurgency that ironically makes the Cylons seem like you know the U.S. military. Uh, there, there's a the use of torture. There's a the creation of a puppet government. In other words, the Americans in Iraq are the Cylons occupying New Caprica, and the human insurgents are like the Iraqi militias fighting a foreign occupation. Um, Ronald Moore responded to the outcry, and there actually was you know, a lot of people uh, upset with the storyline uh, in this way. Here's him. 
A lot of people have asked me if the silent occupation was our way of addressing the situation in Iraq, but it really wasn't. There are obvious parallels, but the truth is when we talked about the episodes in the writer's room, we talked more about Vichy France, Vietnam, the West Bank, and various other occupations. We even talked about what happened when the Romans were occupying Gaul. I think you can see the wink and the nod here, because uh, make no mistake, the parallels were explicit and incredibly timely, which is what made the show so successful. Yes. And I, I mean, I think, yes, he's being a little bit disingenuous there, I I think, definitely, because um, BSG's politics were, were fairly clear. Uh, and that extended not just through that season, but also in others where there was a discussion, for example, of the danger of the military having more power than the civilian government or to to be ceding power to to military leaders or to see military solutions as uh, better or more uh, desirable than uh, you know civilian solutions. So I think that there's there are uh, threads running through the entire, show that indicate that um, this was, uh, again, a timely commentary and not uh, an accident. Um, and and that, you know, those po- that political stance would be, uh, you know, I think would be expected from, as we've talked about before, from a Hollywood that tends to, tends in the direction of liberalism. Um, but it is interesting, we, just as a, a brief mention, although we're not going to talk about it at length, it is interesting how using sci-fi to discuss earthbound realities can also be turned to other political purposes because there's a show that you're much more familiar with than I am. I only did season one when it first airs that that actually was a quite clear articulation of the shift in later years, right after BSG, uh, towards a more right-wing ideology, more kind of Tea Party uh, tone um, in response to uh, 9-11. Did you want to just briefly uh, mention Falling Skies? Yeah, I do, because it is the flip side of this this discussion of what happened. It's a theme about about occupation from an alien force. But as you said, it's actually a rather conservative narrative. And I think it's because it happens so, you know, so long after 9-11 that we've kind of in some ways moved away from the context of the, the disastrous Iraq war uh, because Falling Skies, which appeared on TNT, right when they were really getting into the sci-fi business, um, lasted from 2011 to, to 2016 and it stars Noah Wiley. He's like the main star. Uh, and this is another alien invasion story, not unlike War of the Worlds, but this time they stayed longer. And you get a, to see how maybe the Tim Robbins of the world would handle a long-term resistance and some of the same paranoia and, and sort of righteous rage that he was beginning to show in War of the Worlds is, is really what binds these human survivors together. The five seasons... Know, follow the the human resistance army as they organize and win back humanity's freedom. With Falling Skies, you know, the American Revolution is all over the place in this film. For one, it really the setting is is Boston, and Noah Wiley is a military history professor at Harvard, of course, who winds up being an, an amazing military commander because he uses the lessons of history. 
But what's really interesting is how selective his lessons of history are. And even if you're just watching the pilot in the first couple episodes, <laughs> he's really just trying to motivate. He's trying to motivate these these uh, human survivors to uh, fight like the they are American revolutionaries. And he uses all these examples also from history that have, but but never any that involve the United States that are also you know more relevant, like Vietnam or, for example. Uh, the Iraq war where a superior force, which is us is getting bested by an inferior force. That's quietly written out of this, um, this military history seminar he's giving to his warriors. So he counsels his band of citizen soldiers to remember the Minutemen partisans throughout history, but, but never obvious examples like Vietnam or anything suggesting American weakness. Uh, Stefan Hanka is a great scholar on film and pop culture, he wrote an article about Falling Skies as a reflection of Tea Party ideology, a fantasy where citizen militias rise up and destroy the alien occupiers of urban environments. Now, much like a lot of these sci-fi shows, the, the, the flying saucers are hovering over all the major cities, and that's where they start the occupation. And and Hanke basically read uh, Falling Skies as anti-Obama sci-fi. You know, these... These militias are all have they're all organized by state and they all kind of look like the Michigan militias are ones we're used to dealing with now, forming this this broad-based national resistance against a central authority. This time it's literally an alien one. In Falling Skies and the USA series colony, humans are like the Fedayeen fighters in Iraq. You know, they attach machine guns to pickup trucks, they plant IEDs at the side of the road. They wear ratty clothes, live hand to mouth, and speak of destroying the foreign invaders that are polluting their civilization. I think it's worth playing uh, a clip from Noah Wiley later on. It's kind of as the series progresses, addressing his battle-hardened militia, urging them to be brutal, and and kind of think of it from the perspective of of what it's like to be the insurgent here, as opposed to the occupying power, because I mean, honestly, we're the we're the occupying power in our recent history. We're never going to be the insurgent. But listen to Wiley's rhetoric because it's it's really fierce, and you've got to, I think, put it in the perspective of that anti-Obama um, strain that that infects the country, a certain part of the country, in these years, say 2011, 2012. Every single person here has lost someone that they love. Someone who's made the ultimate sacrifice for the greater good. And for those sacrifices to mean anything, we're going to have to win this war. And to win the war, I'm going to need you to get mad with me. I'm not talking about anger. I'm talking about rage. You think you're mad, but you're not. It's human nature to take your foot off the gas right before the finish line. We're not going to do that. This is the time for overkill to fire both barrels, to use everything we've got. Our enemy is still out there, but they're unprotected and they're vulnerable. And they are just waiting for us to take them out if we've got the will to do it. Because when the last bullet goes into the last skinner, this war is over. Soon the time will come for us to go back to being doctors and bricklayers, school teachers. Mothers and fathers, but that time is not now. That is not who we are. Right now, we are warriors. And so I'm putting a challenge to each and every one of you. 
to find your warrior. Yes, and it's telling that we can draw a direct line from there through to today, of course, uh, in the politics of the nation. And I'd also like to point out that another thing that we see in shows like this, you spoke about how um, it's the cities that the aliens are hovering over or that they occupy first. And I don't think it's an accident that the way that many of these shows uh, play out is that the people who are destroyed first are the people in those cities. And that then the, the implication is that the more sort of authentic Americans are the ones that then, in other words, rural, suburban, white, end up being the people who uh, mount that uh, insurgency against this alien, foreign, invader population. I think that that's not, that's not an accident, uh, that it plays out that way. Before we leave Falling Skies and Battlestar Galactica behind, I do want to draw a contrast between the two. And we just heard you know, Noah Wiley with this sort of battle cry, uh, remorseless you know, call for battle. There's a scene when uh, Battlestar Galactica is taking place on New Caprica, where you have a, a discussion between Colonel Ty and you know, former President Rosalind, as they are now kind of just hostages on this on this sad little colony occupied by the Cylons. And they're debating t- these extreme tactics. And let's listen to Colonel Ty kind of preach to former President Rosalind his uh, demand for extreme tactics against the Cylons. I got one job here, lady, and one job only, to disrupt the Cylons. Make them worry about the anthill they've stirred up down here so they're distracted and out of position when the old man shows up in orbit. The bombings, they got the Cylons' attention. They really got their attention, and I am not giving that up. We are talking about people blowing themselves up. You know, sometimes I think that you've got ice water in those veins, and other times I think you're just a naive little schoolteacher. I've sent men on suicide missions in two wars now, and let me tell you something. It don't make a god's damn bit of difference whether they're riding in a viper or walking out onto a parade ground. In the end, they're just as dead. So take your piety and your moralizing and your high-minded principles and stick them someplace safe until you're off this rock and you're sitting in your nice cushy chair on Colonial One again. I've got a war to fight. So when you compare that to Falling Skies, uh, at least there's some debate and some sadness about giving up the their humanity in the face of this war against the Cylons. Here, there's sadness about it, whereas in Falling the Skies, they're almost reveling in this you know murderous rage. And it's it's interesting how two shows with similar subject matter are approaching it you know very differently. Yeah, and I would just say what they're really debating here is uh, terrorism. Are we going? Are we? Are we terrorists? Or are we freedom fighters? And it's also important to know that this is happening while in Iraq, 
Zarqawi is taking an enormous toll on on U.S. forces at this time with these exact same tactics, not just U.S. forces, but but Iraqi forces that were that were friendly to 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 the U.S. So this was really one of the reasons why that storyline was so controversial is that it hit, it hit home. And Ronald D. Moore, I think, maybe even misjudged how how closely linked to the to the news it really was and that's why he kind of had that you no know, oh it, you know it's about the romans too and yeah i don't think so but it works it works so we've talked about science fiction that evoked the imagery of 911 and science fiction obsessed with resistance and revolution but what about the emotional and psychological fallout the loss the grief, the shock, the anger, and of course, very much show this the sense that nothing can ever be the same. I think it's interesting that there aren't more films and TV shows that deal with that. Although, as you said earlier, I think that the TV shows that we're looking at, both Battlestar Galactica and now the next one we're going to talk about, um, have the space to do that more because they are TV shows. Well, one show that does that we that we both love is HBO's The Leftovers, which played from 2014 to 2017. The Leftovers is based on the, the novel by Tom Perota and adapted for HBO by Perota and Damon Lindelof, who we know as the creator of Lost and more recently, The Watchmen. Uh, the Leftovers presents a universe in which God is dead. One October 14th, you know, an, an important date like a September 11th, one year in the early... 21st century, 140 million people worldwide suddenly disappeared. Babies, the elderly, the Pope, uh, Gary Busey, four out of five cast members of Perfect Strangers, even fetuses in the womb. And the, the series is about the shock, the horror, the trauma of what became known as this sudden departure. It left no one untouched, sending survivors into their own spiral of guilt, anger, hedonism, and a kind of meaningless search for, for answers. Uh, some believed it was the rapture, while others, especially the faithful who are still there on planet Earth, argued the opposite. Yes, it's, it's an interesting premise, this idea that we're sort of dropped into this world, uh, because the, the series starts three years after October 14th, which, as you say, defies all other kind of names getting at, attached to it, it because it it's, defies the ability to sort of explain it. And so the date itself becomes its name. And so the series starts three years on. And so you are dropped right in the middle of how all sorts of people have ended up responding to it. In other words, they've had three years of responding to it. And so we see kind of more mature responses in a sense. I don't mean mature as in like grown up, but you know, that they've been going on for a while. And uh, in the Atlantic, Sophie Gilbert noted that the question that Parada and Lindelof seem to be occupying themselves with isn't how it happened, so much as what happens next, she writes, how does humanity respond to a universe in which everything is meaningless? 
And, you know, yet again, it's initially set in a fictional New York uh, suburb called Mableton. So we're then again in the outskirts of New York. And uh, it revolves around the family of a police chief, uh, Kevin Garvey, who's played really brilliantly by Justin Throw, and Nora Durst, also equally brilliantly played by Carrie Coon, who is this is her first real sort of big role, a woman who lost not only her husband, but also both of her children in the sudden departure. Uh, Nora's brother, Matt Jameson, is uh, played by Christopher Eccleston, and uh, he's a pastor who spends his days, because he is somebody who has a, a religious faith, trying to expose the sordid pasts of people who departed because it bothers him so much that um, that some people are trying to explain away the, the sudden departure as, in fact, the rapture, which would mean, of course, that everybody who's left behind are not the righteous and everybody who departed are the righteous. And so that's why, you know, the list that you gave is supposed to be, you know, a commentary on that and also quite funny, right? So the Pope departed, but so did Gary Busey. <laughs> you know, so so you get this, you know, this, this, this really again, like this idea that it was it was truly meaningless. Totally random. That yeah, absolutely. This yeah. event uh happened. Um yeah, I actually this is what I did some research on the the leftovers for my book on on Holocaust imagery, because I think the idea of grief and trauma and loss is so just perfectly mediated here on, in the series. Uh, I, I watched the and listened to the audio commentary by Parada and Lindelof on the uh, the first season of the of the series, and one of the things they were struck by is how. Uh, it came off as such a kind of depressing show. That's all. What's one of the first things people said was just how, I mean, in, in a depressing, not in just for no reason. It, it just happened to strike people as a very dark and depressing series, but also very good. And they were shocked by that because they thought it was kind of funny in a just surreal way. And they, and they realized that after they had really created the, the series um, and, wrote, and wrote the whole thing together that, yeah, it does come across as dark, but while they're making it, they actually thought it was almost so absurd that it had a dark, darkly comic feel to it. And I think the whole, the Gary Busey part and the, just the, um, uh, the, 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 even the, the guilty remnant, this cult we'll talk about in a bit, that that was just kind of humorous to them, but they, and they couldn't understand why no one else saw the humor, but I think maybe they misjudged just how close to that 9-11 feel of trauma and loss they actually they actually got. Well, and actually, I would like to build on that a little bit because there was a, um, a piece on Vox recently uh, by uh, Emily Vanderwerf who wrote that the perfect show to be binge watching right now is – the leftovers because she says the existential horror and hope of the leftovers is the perfect show for 2021. And, and, and I think that that is crucial is that it's, it's, it's kind of a, a companion to our current sorrow, horror sense of 
being kind of adrift with the pandemic, uh, being helpless in the face of potentially the sort of disintegration of our society and how how so little meaning exists that we can hang on to because we have you know a lot of the the a lot of the horror that we are currently experiencing is precisely because there is no you know meaning has been stripped from things truth has been stripped from things and so therefore we're sort of adrift and i and i think that is quite true is that it it, it rewatching it as i have done in the last little while it really is a an incredible companion piece to the the circumstances we find our, ourselves in but it is also very funny and i think part of it is that you've got to give yourself permission to find it funny yeah i think you do and let's um let's take a step back and introduce more of the the characters and plot as we talk about how it re, how it really addresses those feelings of loss and trauma in specifically in, in connection to 9-11. Uh, it really, it centers on the family of, of Kevin Garvey, who for him, this family's still on earth, but, but they're still lost to him, which makes it in some ways, makes him maybe one of the more uh, empathetic characters for us because he, uh, uh, he, he, he can't go with the excuse that people just disappeared for one day they're they're right in front of him yet he can't connect with him uh, his wife Lori, played by by amy brenneman uh, did lose a pregnancy in the southern departure that's something that did happen that day and she joins a cult called the guilty remnant founded by one of Lori's former psychiatric patients named patty levin played by ann dowd who's just great in everything she does uh, Kevin's son, Tom, uh, played by Chris Zilka, follows a mystic named Holy Wayne, who's really important in the first season, that's played by Patterson Joseph. Uh, and Holy Wayne supposedly takes people's pain away with a simple embrace. And it's not altogether clear whether we're supposed to believe that, or is it, a, is it really a con, or is it, does it matter? It's, it seems to be psychological. Um, Garvey's teenage daughter, Jill, uh, played by Margaret Qualley, who, who's become quite a great actress now, uh, lives at home with Kevin, but she's as cold uh, and distant as The Departed. Kevin's father is uh, Kevin Sr., Scott Glenn, and the casting there is great. But the two, they, you know, he's in an insane, and Scott Glenn is in an insane asylum, and he pushes Kevin Jr. to stop pretending nothing happened and embrace his yet kind of undetermined role in this mystery of the sudden departure. And so the rest of the series, seasons two and three, still center on Kevin and his family and his budding relationship with Nora Durst uh, that takes root in, in season one, but faces difficulties later. And it's really just unraveling this mystery. And typical to Lindelhoff, uh, it doesn't, you know, you don't know what happens because it doesn't matter. That's not what really matters. It's the, um, how humanity reacts and where, how it processes trauma, not the origins almost are insignificant. And, they, and it turns out we never know what really happens. We have, we, it's a leap of faith on our part to believe the explanation that's given or not. Yes, I agree with you that it's a great uh, bit of casting, uh, uh, Justin Thoreau and, and Scott Glenn, because um, can I just say that Justin Thoreau is a physical specimen unlike any <laughs> other. 
And as you say, that Scott Glenn is, um, you know, it really is perfect because the two of them are both just kind of a collection of muscle and sinew uh, (laughs) walking around. Um, And so uh, it's really, uh, it's really a good choice. And I'd also like to just uh, have a shout out here. As you said, Anne Dowd is phenomenal in this. And I think that uh, thanks to this and a couple of other shows, there's a, a couple of actresses, one of whom is Anne Dowd and the other one who uh, is Margot Martindale, who have really exploded into the public's consciousness uh, over the past few years Uh, And it's so wonderful because they are character actresses who have been doing fantastic work forever, but because they aren't sort of the Hollywood cookie cutter notion of of what women on screen are supposed to look like, I think um, these sort of serious uh, long form TV series like uh, The Leftovers and others have really, uh, they've really found a home there. So I just wanted to kind of uh, uh, throw that out there. but. Let's just uh, maybe speak to what a few of the things are about the leftovers that we we see, again, tying us back to uh, 9-11. You know, first of all, as we talked about it, the the date, October 14th, is sort of, um, you know, deployed by characters the way that we say 9-11. And, and tied to that, one of the things that's really interesting is the the kind of tension around commemoration, which I think is very, very interesting, I guess, maybe because I'm a historian, but there's this whole sequence uh, that the first season sort of leads up to that's all about remembering and what form remembering should take. The the idea that these people are heroes, but we don't know if they're here. I mean, the only thing that's made them heroic, apparently, is that they're, they've disappeared. Or is it, in fact... Um, wrong to be remembering them that way and instead they should be remember what should be remembered is the loss in other words remembering who they who they were which can be extremely uh, painful when people are forced uh, to do that and in the second season we get this sort of commemoration and loss thing again in this creation of this entire community that builds up around the one town that supposedly has had no departures or, you know, did have no departures um, during the sudden departure. And it has now become a, like a pilgrimage site uh, so that the everyday lives of this town's worth of people has become weirdly a kind of monument to memorialize those who have disappeared. So there's this, there's these very interesting things. And I think that the whole conversation around and difficulty that was around the, um, the creation of the 9-11 memorial and the museum and all of that, I think is very much, uh, very much part of this package. And, and I can tell you that like, you know, as a, as a New Yorker, I have never been to the 9-11 museum. I have no desire to go to the 9-11 museum. I feel that there is, you know, the last thing I want is to be told how I should be thinking about that day. And I think that that's something that's really captured very well in the the various tensions and controversies around remembering 
that are in uh, the leftovers. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, uh, the, the first season where they, they're planning for the, whatever it's called, I can't remember what the name, it is what type of, it's like Memorial Day. It's a different type of Memorial Day, but there's these, the police chief, Kevin Garvey is saying, you know, he's really skeptical about doing it. He goes, this is meaningless. People aren't ready for this. And the mayor and all these other people are saying, people are ready to feel better. People are ready to feel better. And of course, what happens is this cult, the guilty remnant reminds people that you're not really ready to feel better. That That's the thing is they don't need to do much other than to remind them, as they call themselves, living reminders of the lost, that it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all bread and circuses in some ways. These parades, the uh, statues they commemorate, which are truly disturbing, you know, babies floating into the sky as a mother is trying to reclaim it. I mean, the, the reading off of the dead, which again is something you also remember every 9-11 that they do is recite all, you know, 29... Uh, 2,995 names. Uh, that is um, something we are used to, and we also start to tune it out. And I think that's something they're commenting on in The Leftovers as well. And let me bring in another really explicit uh, allusion to 9-11. In The Leftovers, there is a newly created Department of Sudden Departure, just like there was within months after 9-11, a new Department of Homeland Security that's equally as ineffective, chasing its own tail. And I say that as someone who used to work there. Uh, it's chasing its own tail and never really accomplishing its stated mission. The Department of Sudden Departure is there to figure out what happened and then also essentially crack down on what the explosion of cults and threats that they are deemed cultish with almost unlimited power to crush them. I mean, this is the the new laws after October 14th give are kind of like the, a Patriot Act on steroids. And if that isn't an, a, a reference to what our national and domestic security universe has become, I, I don't know what is. But it, it's uh, it's really jarring to see how often these law enforcement and in, in the leftovers, they liquidate cults without even any hesitation and seemingly with an open legal mandate to do so. And that's... Um, that's a reflection of, of a post 9-11 environment, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that um, one of the other things that, as you have talked about, uh, that this shares with literature and film that borrows imagery and also just tone from from things dealing with the Holocaust is this idea of this sort of before and after where there is no explanation, there's no reasoning uh, for why this after now exists as opposed to that before, and that there is no consensus on how to move forward. There's no that, and I think in part that lack of consensus is part of the, what people are mourning because there's no kind of collective reason that everybody can agree upon for why we're all doing anything that we're doing. And so the pointlessness of all sorts of things starts to become apparent. Whereas, you know, part of the veneer of, of civilization is that we're sort of, we engage in all of these daily activities that are all supposed to have meaning. And one of the things that is a, a, a thread that runs through definitely the first season, because it was part of the novel, but it does get picked up again later, is 
you know, this question that gets asked by Holy Wayne, the, the cult leader of people, and that then and others ask it as well, although not in the same kind of direct way, is do you want to feel this way? Because he is promising that he can make you no longer feel that way simply through an embrace. But it's that question, do you want to feel this way, which which really at its heart has this very disturbing message, which is that we are choosing to respond the way that we do to trauma and that therefore we have a choice to respond a different way. And I think that that, on the one hand, for some people, that could be very freeing. But I think that for most people, what it is, is that it's terrifying because it suggests that there is no meaning except meaning that we give to things. And I think that in the post 9-11 America, we have seen that, right? That there's no meaning to anything except what we give it. And so we have become unmoored because there are people who aren't really equipped to <laughs> to give productive meaning to things. So I let's play a clip here that is in fact the central character in terms of the the embodiment of loss in the first season, which is in fact Nora Durst, because you know she's renowned around this town because everybody knows that she lost her entire family and she's the only one that had that experience. And on top of that, she now works for um, the Department of Sudden Departure, uh, interviewing people, other people who have lost somebody uh, so that they can get their restitution for, for that having happened. And here she, uh, so in other words, kind of both the embodiment of loss, but also the embodiment of the bureaucracy, she actually finds herself turning to Holy Wayne, the cult leader, in an attempt to find some meaning. You've lost someone, yes? Someone's. And you believe that you will always feel that pain. And if it starts to slip away, you... you seek it out again, don't you? You won't let it kill you. You won't kill yourself. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Hope. It's your weakness. You want it gone because you don't deserve it. Nora, you do deserve hope. <laughs> I've seen my own death and it's coming upon me very soon. So this is your one chance, your only chance. And the question remains the same. Do you want to feel this way? As you say, Nora is our our vehicle for exploring grief and trauma. And I love that scene. I love her journey. And 
right after this moment, she seems to have been healed. I think we all know the fall is coming, but she starts to behave like a woman who's accepted that her family's not coming back. So she's, she will now start buying groceries for one person instead of four. She jumps into a her relationship with Kevin Garvey when she was at first kind of standoffish. She uh, forgives the woman who is having an affair with her husband because it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, she She's going through all the motions, but what, what the series reminds us really and what uh, the clip does as well is that Eventually, you're if you if you don't really process your trauma or grief, it's it if you submerge it, it will come back. And the next clip I want to play, also featuring Nora, is the uh, only a couple episodes later, the end of season one, where the the guilty remnant pulls off this horrific stunt as as is their mission to make people remember. And when Nora sees that, she utters this horrific, silent scream that we can only visually really appreciate. And she sits down to write this letter to Kevin, essentially explaining why she is withdrawing from life, Uh, not committing suicide, simply leaving, disappearing in the same way that her family did. And and it's the other side of this issue of, of grief her attempt to try to not feel that way, to not feel anymore with Holy Wayne's embrace has failed. So now she's going in the other direction and her reasons are worth exploring. And I think this, this um, monologue is, uh, is a beautiful ending to, to season one. And, and also a big part of our, our reason for why we're highlighting it in a, a series about nine eleven. Dear Kevin, I need to say goodbye to someone I care about, someone who's still here. So I'm saying it to you. You were good to me, Kevin. And sometimes when we were together, I remembered who I used to be before everything changed. But I was pretending, pretending as if I hadn't lost everything. I want to believe it can all go back to the way it was. I want to believe that I'm not surrounded by the abandoned ruin of a dead civilization. I want to believe it's still possible to get close to someone. But it's easier not to. It's easier because I'm a coward. And I couldn't take the pain. Not again. I know that's not fair, Kevin. You've lost so much, too, and you're strong. You're still here. But I can't be, not anymore. I tried to get better, Kevin. I didn't want to feel this way, so I took a shortcut. But it led me right back home. And do you know what I found when I got there? I found them, Kevin, right where I left them. Right where they left me. It took me three years to accept the truth, but now I know there's no going back, no fixing it. 
I'm beyond repair. Maybe we're all beyond repair. So I think that it's appropriate perhaps to have Nora's words also end our first season of Lies Agreed Upon, where we looked at how Hollywood used history to process an event of great trauma and loss uh, for not only Americans, but for people elsewhere, and where the actions that happened in response to 9-11 created new traumas or uh, were intended to end traumas, but in fact just perpetuated them. We hope that looking at these various ways that Hollywood has dealt with 9-11 has been uh, interesting and informative and also entertaining and that what we've talked about have sent you in back to watch again or to watch for the first time many of the things that we've shared with you. So it's been very meaningful for us to put this series together. And as Leah communicated, I hope it's been meaningful for you. And we will be back. We will be back for a season two. And I think we've decided that maybe just because of how the world is going and recent events, that a topic suitable could be revolts and revolutions in different contexts. But revolt and revolution is perennial, but it feels very immediate in the last few months in 2020, 2021. And that is going to be season two coming later this year. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.